I remember the first time I saw Freddie. He was standing in his playpen at the adoption agency where I work. He gave me a toothy grin. What a beautiful baby, I thought. His foster mother gathered him into her arms. Then I saw Freddie had been born without arms. Freddie is a warm, affectionate child who had been surrendered by his natural mother and is ready for adoption. I wasn't alone in looking for parents for Freddie. Any of the caseworkers meeting a new couple started out with the hope maybe they were for Freddie. But summer slipped into fall and Freddie was with us his first birthday. And then I found them. It started out as it always does, an impersonal record on my, in my box, a new case, a new home study, two people who wanted a child. They were Francis and Edward Pearson. She was 41, he was 45. She was a housewife, and he was a truck driver. I went to see them. They lived in a tiny white frame house in a big yard full of sun and old trees. And they agreed to meet together at the door, eager and scared to death. And after, after a moment, Mrs. Pearson began, today is our wedding anniversary, 18 years. Good years, Mr. Pearson looked at his wife, except, yes, she said, except, always the except. You think it's always, you always think it will be this month and then next month, Mr. Pearson said, examinations and tests and all kinds of things, over and over, but nothing ever happened. You, cope, you just go on hoping and hoping and time keeps slipping by. We've tried to adopt before this, Mr. Pearson said. One agency told us our apartment was too small, so we got this house. And then the other agency said we didn't make enough money. We decided it that was it, but this friend told us about you, and we decided to give it one last try. I'm glad, I said. Well, I said cautiously, there, there is this little boy. He's just 13 months old. Oh, Mrs. Pearson said, just a beautiful age. I have a picture of him, I said, reaching into my purse. I handed them Freddie's picture. He's a wonderful boy, I said, but he was born without arms. They studied the picture in silence, and he looked at her, and what do you think, Fran? Kickball, Mrs. Pearson said. You could teach him kickball. Athletics are not so important, Mr. Pearson said. He can learn to use his head. Arms he can do without. A head, never. He can go to college. We'll, we'll save for it. A boy is a boy, Mrs. Pearson insisted. He needs to play, and you can teach him. I'll teach him. Arms aren't everything, but maybe we can get him some. They have forgotten me, but maybe Mr. Pearson was right, I thought. Maybe sometime Freddie could be fitted with artificial arms. He did have nubs where his arms should be. Then you might like to see him. They looked up. When could we have him? You think you might want him? Mrs. Pearson looked at me. Might? She said, might. We want him, her husband said. 
Mrs. Pearson went back to the picture. You've been waiting for us, haven't you, she said. His name is Freddie, I said, but you can change it. No, said Mr. Pearson. Frederick Pearson, it's good together. And that was it. There were the formalities, of course, and by the time we set the day, Christmas lights were strung across the streets and wreaths were hung everywhere. I met the Pearsons in the waiting room, and there was a little snow on both of them. Your son's here already, I told him. I'll go upstairs and bring him to you. I've got butterflies, Mrs. Pearson announced. Suppose he doesn't like us. I put my hand on her arm, and I'll get him, I said. Freddie's foster mother had dressed him in a new white suit with a sprig of green holly and red, red berries embroidered on the collar. His hair had shown a mop of dark curls. Going home, Freddie said to me, smiling, as his foster mother put him into my arms. I told him that, she said. I told him he was going to a new home. She kissed him, and his, her eyes were wet. Goodbye, dear. Be a good boy. Good boy, said Freddie cheerfully, going home. I carried him upstairs to the room where the Pearsons were waiting. And when I got there, I, I put him on his feet and opened the door. Merry Christmas, I said. Freddie stood uncertainly rocking a little, gazing intently at the two people before him. They drank him in. Mr. Pearson slowly knelt down on one knee. He said, Freddie, come here. Come to your daddy. Freddie looked back at me for a moment, and then turning, he walked slowly toward them, and they reached out their arms, and they gathered him in. Spiritually, in so many ways, all of us were Freddie. Born defective from birth, crippled, a void and an emptiness within all of us, a chasm where there was seemingly no bottom. We were adrift. We all needed a home, a family, a father, and someone to belong to. And yet we were pursued by that hound of heaven, the Spirit of God, and introduced to Christ, that we might have a new kind of life, an overflowing life, that we might be called the children of the Most High. It's amazing, the life that God has given to you and me. I want to welcome you to this part of the service, uh, as well as the first message in 2013. And I trust that all of you have had an enjoyable time with family and with friends, as well as plenty of food and a little R&R. &R. But uh, as I thought of the new year, I thought about something that Dad had shared with me. Dad has been involved in the lives of a number of, number of elderly men. And he would pick them up and he would take them out for a coffee break. But throughout this past year, they've passed on, the last one being Andy, Andy Chubb. 
And his dad stated, he said, my coffee buddies are all gone. And he described it as sobering. The reality is that all of us are closer to home. And so it's this appropriate this morning that we all kind of recalibrate our compasses. The idea isn't just finishing. We're all going to finish. That's a given. The idea is, is finishing well. And there's no better way to do that than, to sm than this morning to sit at the feet of the Apostle Paul and uh, consider the truth that he has before us. Now on this journey, we've come face to face with grace. We've journeyed from the pit of man's hopelessness to the cross. And through the cross, we've seen how grace is undeserved. It can never be earned. It is, it is without merit. There's nothing in any of us that would have warned a second glance from God. Nor can it be repaid. And seeing grace, the grace of God in all its colors, we realize that our only response could be to receive Christ. None of us question that. We readily accept that our only merit is to plead Christ. It's his work, his payment, his death, his resurrection, which seals our acceptance with God. But after being saved and given life and being regenerated by God, God begins to sanctify us. But in this process of becoming like Christ or being introduced to holiness, we turn back to an old familiar friend, me. We turn back to ourselves. It's kind of like clipping coupons. This past week, my sister dropped by, and uh, what she did was nothing short of amazing. She went to the local CVS pharmacy, and uh, she bought $39 worth of product for $5 with using coupons and rewards. Isn't it amazing what we can do? If we just put our minds to it, And so we begin clipping coupons for God. Pasting one religious discipline after another in God's book of sanctification. We've all tried that approach, haven't we? And in this process, things become hard. We meet ourselves, our own nature. And begin to realize how deeply rooted that sin is. We begin to understand the truths of Jeremiah 17.9. Well, I thought we did. <laughs> there we go. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? One translation paraphrases it. It says the heart is hopelessly dark 
and deceitful. And above all things, a, a puzzle no one can figure out. But I love what it says after that. Uh, the King James said, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even given to every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. This, uh, this was paraphrased. I like the way he paraphrased it. He put it this way. But I, God, search the heart and examine the mind. I go to the heart of the human. I get to the root of things. I treat them as they really are, not as they pretend to be. The reality is, if there is ever going to be any good, ever any real holiness, real sanctification going to come from this body, this platform of ungodliness and death, then it must be from God. It must be his power, his life, his spirit, and his word that accomplishes it. In, in the epistle John chapter 5, verse 4, it says, Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. There's a principle here we need to understand. Only those things which have their source in God will overcome. Those things which have their source and origin in us will not overcome the world. And then he gives us an illustration. Gives us an example. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Our faith has its source and origin in God himself. Now, before we go to the text, I want to take you on a little journey to help you see how key and how central that God is in this work of sanctification. And so you can just follow me on the PowerPoint. Philippians 1, 6, says, Paul says, And being confident of this very thing, that he which began this work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. What, what Paul is saying... He's saying, I am utterly convinced that God, the one who put his son on the cross, the one who saved me, the one who gave me eternal life, is able, is committed to perfecting me, completing the task until the moment I am ready to meet Jesus Christ. The one who has rescued me from the penalty of sin continues the rescue operation by saving me from the power of sin until, that, until he completes the operation and rescues me even from the presence of sin. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Now turning to Ephesians chapter 2, the verses that we're all acquainted with, verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's, that's salvation. And I can still remember the time when God drilled those truths into my life. It's a gift, and I came to realize that I can't work for something I possess. 
If you work for something, you can only work for what you don't possess. Think about it. If you're working for it, do you possess it? And those words brought to my heart a peace and a rest. But you see, God doesn't stop there. For he says, For we are his workmanship. Notice those words, his workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained. God takes the miry clay, you and I, and he begins forming us, shaping us. And there are so many times that I have to remind myself that I am the project. I am not my own project. It is God who is shaping me. I cannot build and shape myself. If you ever had the opportunity of uh, watching a potter, someone who's, who's doing the clay, uh, I had the opportunity at our local art festival, and as I watched, I was struck by the skill of the potter, how skillfully they used their hands as it was turning. But the other thing I was struck by, not once did the clay say, no, you can't do that. You see, that's why we have Romans 7. Because we strive with the potter. You can't do that. No, I want it my way. That's why we have Romans 7, those who are crying, pleading, I want it my way. But quietly, the potter continues. You see, there's something about this potter we need to recognize, and that is this potter, the one who's shaping us, never makes mistakes. Not once do you hear, oops, my bad. You see, the other thing is that God already knows the outcome or the goal he has in mind before he begins. Notice what it says, he hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God knew the outcome before he started shaping the clay. One more scripture. It's in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren. Here's a list. If you're walking with God, it's one you should know. Warn the unruly, comfort the feeble-minded. No, that doesn't mean help your pastors. It means encourage the timid. Support the weak. And here's a hard one. Be patient towards all men. How are you doing in that? Always being patient with people. Isn't that hard? Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. Another hard one. In everything, give thanks. 
Notice what he says. You want to know what the will of God is? It's right in front of you. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Be thankful that everything that comes into your life, that's, that's a tall, tall order. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things. In other words, be discerning. Don't be afraid to test something before you buy into it. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. In other words, don't mingle with anything that has a hint of impropriety. Then look at verse 23. And may the God of peace sanctify you wholly. That means entirely and completely. And I pray that, pray God that your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How is it possible for that kind of list to be ended with the words blameless? There's only one reason, and that's because of verse 24. Faithful is he that has called you who will also do it. Isn't that amazing? I love the words, I think it was of Martin Luther, who prayed, God... Demand what you will. He was saying, God, don't let there be any, any kind of top to what you ask of my life. But then he added, supply what you demand. You see, God is committed to this process not only of keeping you, that's the idea of guarding you or preserving you, but preserving you blameless. You know, that helps me to trust God and the Holy Spirit when I, when I read those kinds of words. And I, I go through some of the things I go through. It helps me trust him when I read those words, faithful is he that hath called you, for he will do it. Help me to trust God. Now, to our text in Romans 8, verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh, you're no longer captivated or dominated by your own nature. Why? But ye are in the Spirit. God has given to us the Holy Spirit who's opened the prison doors within us, and he sets us free. We are no longer to be dominated by the old nature that is within us that we were born with. Verse 10, And if Christ be in the body, if be in you, the body is dead because of sin. Remember 
uh, Romans 6. The only thing able to free us from sin was death. We were baptized into Christ's death. Death sets us free. He that is dead is freed from sin. And now the Holy Spirit desires to lead you and I. So what kind of power does the Holy Spirit have? Well, he tells us. Verse 11 but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised Christ from the dead, he shall also quicken your mortals' bodies by a spirit which dwelleth in you. Simply put, God's power is not just about the future. Yes, he will raise us bodily in the future, but his power is for living holy now. Living righteously. When Martin Luther uh, came to understand justification in, in Romans 3, he was faced with the same thing you and I were. He was faced with sin in his life. And so he kept reading in Romans. He read Romans 6 and 7 and 8. And he discovered the truth that is in front of us. And he applied it to his life. One day a visitor knocked at his door. And Martin Luther answered the door. The visitor asked, he said, I'm looking for Martin Luther. And Martin Luther said, he doesn't live here anymore. The visitor asked, well, what happened to him? Martin Luther said, he died. Well, who lives here, replied the stranger. And Martin Luther replied, Jesus Christ does. Now, for practical reasons, I know we can't all go change our names in the phone book. But for those areas, all those other areas of life, why can't we live like that? You see, it's what his power is all about. Verse 12 says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. In other words, we are morally and legally obligated. If you, if you take a loan out, you are a debtor. You are morally and legally obligated to the lender. Well, we are morally and legally obligated to Christ because of what that he did for us. We are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. If you remember, he's talking about a sin unto death. And we've went into that the last message. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Well, what does it look to live after the Spirit on shoe leather? Well, at some point in each morning... I come before Jesus Christ. It could be in bed. It could be as I'm reading. Sometimes when I'm shaving. Sometimes even when I'm driving. But I give to Jesus the steering wheel of my life. I just tell him, Lord, you know me. 
You know what I'm facing. You know I can be an incredibly selfish person. And uh, today I'm, I'm choosing to rest on you. Your strength, your power, your wisdom. And I want you glorified today. Now you can tell when you're resting on the flesh. And here's how you can tell. The reason is because you're all torn up inside. You're literally churning. Uh, I'm always reminded of the definition of stress that I read on a t-shirt. Stress is when your mind overrides your body's desire to give someone what they desperately need. You see, when the flesh is in control, you can outwardly do the right thing, but inwardly you're churning. You're just going. And the other thing is you probably put on a saying, wait, just wait till I get the opportunity to even the score. Like when someone takes something that you want or somebody cuts you off in traffic or trying to be pleasant when somebody else is rude. You see, when you're in the flesh, you can do the right thing. But inside... You're just waiting. You see, the difference is when you're in the spirit, you can do some of the very same things, but there's no spin cycle. You're not churning. You know why? Because you've surrendered. You've already put Christ at the wheel. There isn't the churning that takes place. That's how you can tell who's driving in your life. You see, the flesh always opposes God. It's always marked by selfishness, me, myself, and I. And the outcome of the flesh is always a negative death-like experience, a lack of satisfaction, turmoil, Lust, envy, resentment, irritation, revenge, and bitterness. When the flesh is in control, that's where you'll find yourself. All of it corruption, and as far as your experience and feelings, it's really no different than that of a lost person. Let me just be gut honest this morning. Which one of us hasn't been there since we've been saved? But aren't you grateful that the Spirit of God didn't quit? Verse 14 says, As many as are led by the Spirit, they are the sons of God. There are three markers that must be in place for you to be able to discern 
the will of God. These are absolutely essential for your life. They need to be in your life in order for you to, to understand, to walk in the center of God's will. The first is this, knowing and spending time in God's word. We absolutely know for sure that the Holy Spirit never leads us in anything that is contrary to the word of God. And so when you get tested, it's essential that you have spent time and know the will of God, that you're acquainted with the word of God, so that there's no guessing in this. So it's essential that you guys are fastened, that you guys are, getting, are, you guys are spending time in the word of God. Otherwise, people are, people are able to lead you into all kinds of, kinds of crazy stuff. Second... Second is just being willing to do the will of God. One theologian says 90% of knowing the will of God consists of being willing to do the will of God before we know it. Isn't that amazing? And to know the will of God, there must be a surrender of your will. You can, will never know God's will experientially unless you've surrendered your will. Won't happen. Thirdly, there must be an awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit and a desire to be led and guided into all truth. That word led means to be means to be led by laying a hold of. It's often used to describe the putting a collar on an animal for the sake of leading. You see, God took a hold of us that he might lead us. Stop and think about it. I'm doing things today, 20 or 30 years ago. I'm doing and experiencing things that I, I never thought would, would ever be possible for me to do. But you know, that, that's not just true of me. That's true of many of you. You're experiencing things. You Freedom. You experience a fellowship with God and, and, and a, a, a relationship with God you, you, you never thought possible. As well as this kind of a church family. Church where there's love, there's support, warmth, there's teaching, there's encouragement. Not as much criticism. Isn't it amazing you can have that? Things we never dreamed possible. Verse 15 says, for we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear but you have received the spirit of adoption where we cry Abba Father children who have been adopted are pursued and chosen God describes you as adopted you've been adopted and God pursued you 
God chose you. And with adoption comes sonship and a closeness with the Spirit of God. With sonship, there is removed that spirit of slavery, of bondage. Um, a slave is always fearful, or there is a terror of his master. In a sonship, there is respect and reverence, but not terror in a healthy relationship. The Spirit of God does not lead you to terror. A child of God who's born again to experiencing terror from God. He, he lead, does lead you into very healthy reverence and respect and awe of God, but not a terror. You see, the ministration of the law brought the fear of God or the terror of God. If you, if you remember the Israelites, they were, they were fearful of God. But the administration of Gary's sets the children free from fear. Perfect love casteth out fear. You see, in justification, we have the act of, of God's grace towards us. And in sanctification, we have the act of God's grace within us the difference between the two and we cry abba father those are the first words that a small palestinian child learns abba daddy those are the first words that they learn as a child verse 17 or verse 16 says the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of god We are the children of God. Um, God assures us with his spirit that we are valuable and that we are his. And notice the words, he beareth witness with, not to our spirit, but with our spirit. On the testimony of two witnesses, on the let every word be established. Your spirit bears witness that you're a child of God, and the spirit of God comes along the side and gives the same testimony that you are a child of God. Isn't that amazing? Verse 17. If, er if children, then heirs and heirs. And heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so, that we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified with him. Adoption made us sons, and sonship opens the doors to the riches, the wealth, the wisdom of God. Isn't that amazing? Um, and simply put, in making you a son, God is saying everything that I have is now open to you. When someone becomes an heir, you all know what a will is about, right? Everything that is belong comes bequeathed to you. It's absolutely fantastic what God has given to us as the children of God. But isn't it time we start living like it? 
I want to close with this story. A young man, a young man named Sinner, once received from his father a, a bright red sedan named Salvation. It was sparkling and new and clean and bright, and it delighted the young man so much, especially since it was a gift from his father. He could never afford it, and it so delighted the boy that he changed his name from Sinner to Saved. He polished the car every week, took pictures of it, sent it to friends, and looked it over front to back, top to bottom, Inside and out, he never tired of telling others of the gift and showing others the pictures of his free gift from his father. Someday later, Saved was seen out on a highway pushing salvation. An individual named Helper walked up and introduced himself and asked if he could assist. Ah, no thanks doing just fine as he wiped the sweat from his brow. Just a little trouble this morning from the bumper cutting into my hands, especially on the hills. But then a nice man who was a specialist in pushing cars showed me how to mount a rubber cushion right underneath the bumper here. And now I can push for hours without a blister. And also I've been trying to do something new, a secret I learned from England. I put my back against the car, lift high, and works like a charm on muddy roads. Helper asked, have you pushed this car very far? Well, about 200 miles. It's been hard, but it's the least I can do for my father who gave me the car. How subtle. Helper opened the door on the right side and said, Get in. After some hesitation, Saved thought it might be worth a try. So he slid in and sat down. For the first time since he had been given the car, he rested. Helper walked around to the other side, opened the door, slid in behind the wheel started the motor. Moments later, they were slipping down the highway 50 miles an hour, quietly and smoothly. It was even exciting. Save knew he needed Salvation Sedan to be admitted at the gate at the end of the highway. But somehow, he felt getting there was, was his responsibility. And suddenly he realized that the, for the first time since he got in the car, he was smiling. Let's bow.